welcome to Rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. And today we continue our second season of Rhetoric Orama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. Today's topic is the power and the mystery of blasphemy, and we touch upon heresy, profanity, oaths, and cussing too. But before we get started, we've got a special announcement. Next season, each episode will focus on the rhetoric of blank, in which we uncover the vocabulary, jargon, preferred arguments, and favorite rhetorical figures of various professions, fields, and discourse communities. If you have an idea that you'd like us to cover, or if you have a question or comment, send us an email at rhetoric.fun at gmail.com. If we pick your topic, you'll win a prize. Tim will record some untranslated Latin or Greek for your outgoing message on your answering machine. Now let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started. Non adsumes nomen domini dei tui in vanum nec enim habebit in sontem, dominus eum qui adsumserit nomen domini dei sui frustra. By God, Tim, that was beautiful. But the question before us is, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy comes from the Greek blasphemia, which means slander, speaking sacrilegiously about God or sacred things. Blasphemers are people who speak in shocking, vile, and crude language, but they don't necessarily attack doctrine. That's typically called heresy. I hear what you're saying, but to me, this definition frames blasphemy as a, uh, as a transgressive act of sorts. And I hear what you're saying, Dave, but I'm not sure I fully grasp your point. Care to expand on that framing as transgressive act stuff? Hell yeah. Uh, Now, some people are going to define blasphemy as a, quote, method of describing conflicting beliefs. And in this sense, Tim, blasphemy uh, isn't so much speech aimed against God, against God. It was more of an expression of a different view of God rather than a deviation from the, quote, unquote, true faith. So in other words, let's say you and I are of different religions, which I think is true, right? You're a Taoist and I am a snake handler, right? Yes. Uh, now, if I were to say something that you consider blasphemous to your religion, I might not consider that blasphemous to me in my snake handling tradition because I am of a different religion, right? Mm-hmm. So that is your quote unquote true faith is not my true faith. So there's two ways to interpret this so-called blasphemy from your point of view, and from my point of view, two conflicting beliefs. And I would think that the deciding factor between whose interpretation prevailed depended upon who was more powerful. As Nietzsche said, all things are subject to interpretation. Whichever interpretation prevails at a given time is a function of power and not truth. Good point, Tim. And Nietzsche is the guy who said, uh, God is dead, right? Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's not blasphemous at all in the book. But in a literal sense, it can be considered heretical, right? Attacking one's religious doctrines. Right. And so, much like blasphemy, heresy uh, was vaguely defined and has evolved over the, the, uh, the centuries. Sometimes people use the two terms, blasphemy and heresy, kind of somewhat synonymously. But the main difference, it seems, is that blasphemers attack with shocking language and heretics critique the religious ideals and values, sometimes in shocking language, sometimes not. So heresy can be blasphemous when it uses shocking language, but when heresy doesn't use foul language, it's just regular old heresy. 
bingo, right? So, for example, blasphemy would be saying that whore Virgin Mary, but heresy would be more of saying uh, the Virgin Mary narrative is fraudulent and not scientifically possible. The entire religion of Christianity is dependent on a moment of infidelity. And blasphemy and heresy combined would be that whore Virgin Mary is malarkey and it's total fake news. Hashtag YOLO. But heresy can be much more than talk. But we're rhetoric people, so we should focus on that. Wise words, Tim. Wise words. So what all this suggests to me is that the labeling of the so-called blasphemous talk as being wholly unworthy of discussion and worthy of immediate and severe condemnation seems to be ineffective or should I say, uh, an easier strategy. I mean, it's easier to call attacks and slights against one's uh, God as blasphemous and condemn or eradicate the source of that so-called blasphemy rather than to see it as an opposing viewpoint. That would require some deliberation and the potential threat of compromising one's religious beliefs. Agreed. The tactic seems to be that one religious order would prefer to label their opponents as being anti-God rather than defending their belief about God. That would be too much gosh darn work. Speaking of too much uh, work, I think we belabored the definitional issue, Tim. So why do uh, why does scholars research blasphemy? Religious scholars research blasphemy to better understand how views of the sacred change over time and across geography. For example, in 1528, a European man was burnt to death for denying the Virgin Mary had more power than a statue of the Virgin Mary. That's stone cold, Tim. Then, in 1989, Madonna released her video for Like a Prayer. The video intermingles images of racism, sexuality, and Christianity. Uh, and don't forget that part where Madonna kind of... Uh dances scandalously uh, in front of some burning crosses and makes a number of visual and uh, lyr uh, lyrical allusions towards the erotic. Indeed. The Pope at that time, J2P2, called for a boycott and other religious figures called Madonna's behavior blasphemous. And it is my understanding, Tim, uh, that she was not burnt to death for that. Cor correct, Dave. In fact, the only thing she, had on, she set on fire were the charts, but Pepsi did drop her as a spokesperson. I bet Pepsi thought that lady went all gaga, right? Now, Dave, the Madonna example... The 1989 one? Correct. Yeah. Shows why blasphemy is important to reach research. It's because, as one scholar writes, religiously founded norms continue to shape our Western industrialized societies. But now that you mentioned Madonna's 1989 video for Like a Prayer, I wondered why there was no similar hue and cry in response to her 1984 video for Like a Virgin. That's a really good point, Tim. Uh, but I would say maybe it's because it didn't uh, include any religious symbolism. Are you saying you didn't interpret the real lion or the guy in the lion mask as obvious references to St. Mark, the patron saint of Venice, with the implication that he and Madonna might have been doing it kitty style? Tim, I saw nothing of the sorts. I refuse to comment on your scurrilous asp uh, aspirations against the Queen of Pop. None are so blind as those who will not listen. Uh, wise words, Tim. Now, blasphemy isn't just uh, a matter for the West and for the Christian world, right? Not at all. Many religions, including Judaism and Islam, proscribed blasphemy. A relatively recent example occurred when a French satirical magazine published caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad, which many considered to be blasphemous. There were some peaceful protests and some extremely violent ones, including a jihadi who killed a dozen people. It seems pretty obvious that people throughout human history didn't really like uh, 
others deriding their religion or their gods. Not at all. In the Christian world, blasphemers were said to be crucifying Christ with their tongues. One scholar writes, often blasphemy is presented as the worst of all sins, constituting a deadly sin that could hardly be erased by atonement since it was directed against the divine creator and thus against the highest majesty. Now, if you are found guilty, there are a number of punishments. Uh, if you're found guilty of blasphemy, that is. Sometimes they just let you go. I was shocked to learn. Yeah, mitigating factors like you were drunk or you're involved in gambling and mad about your luck. Uh, it's more like an error of judgment committed in a fit of rage or something yes, like that. A slip of the tongue. Uh, you could also apologize or be shamed. Indeed. Public recanting, penance before the church. There was the symbolic execution where you would put, your in, put you in a hangman's noose on the platform and make you stand there for hours. Yeah, you could, uh, uh, I guess you could also lose your property or your money through fines. Uh, your freedom could be taken away through prison sentences or... Uh, you could be exiled, or I guess you, uh, you, know, they, you could even be executed, as your earlier example suggests. Indeed. And then there was physical punishment, flogging or mutilation. They would bore a hole in your tongue, or just cut your tongue out. I don't know what's worse, Tim. Well, Dave, I'd rather have a holy tongue. Oh, that's good. Uh, and now let's not forget, this, uh, a lot of this was going on at a time when the church and state were often one and the same. Uh, in essence, you know, don't badmouth God or the state in any way that could be contrived as being blasphemous or arousing dissidents, otherwise... Hole in the tongue. Bingo. The most famous example, I think, of this, but minus the tongue part, is that Jesus himself was convicted by the Roman authorities of blasphemy, among other things. Far be it from me, Tim, to question your reading of the Bible, but I understand Matthew chapter 26 to say that Sanhedrin cha uh, charged Jesus with blasphemy, for answering the, their question, are you the Messiah, by saying, if you say so. I stand corrected, Dave. What the Romans charged him with was treason for claiming to be king of the Jews, which was a political rather than theological transgression. But Tim, but when the church and the state, uh, but when the church is the state and the state is the church, does it really matter? It, it's more of a, a person and his followers going up against the so-called powers that be, if we keep uh, with our earlier reference to Nietzsche. I agree. So let's shift gears a bit, Tim. Uh, in researching blasphemy, I found that there is a lot of discussion about the ideas uh, related to blasphemy, and those were profanity and oaths, so we should probably talk about those. Agreed. Profanity comes from the Latin profanus, which has its roots in Latin fanum, meaning temple. It eventually was understood to mean to desecrate or violate a temple. And in a lot of ways, it is synonymous with blasphemy, and some of the scholarship on these topics use the words interchangeable. But profanity has since come to mean obscenities or dirty words that deal with sex or about things coming in or coming out of your body. So profanity has uh, migrated from uh, religious ideas to copulation and excretion. Sometimes people mix religion, copulation, and excretion into the apotheosis of dirty phrases. Holy fucking shit. Tim, my mother-in-law listens to this. I swear, I'll never do it again. All right. Uh, well, speaking of swearing, uh, last up is oaths, which surprised me a bit. Uh, being sworn in at court uh, as a government official, uh, being sworn in in the military, or something way more dangerous, your wedding, you swear an oath. Dave, your mother-in-law listens to this, but the religious nature of these oaths are that you are committed to the values of your faith such as not lying about important things by saying under God or something similar. And the swearer often places a hand over a Bible, a Torah, or a Quran. 
you know, in less formal settings, one might swear on some other sacred objects such as uh, your mother's grave or your life or your eyes and utterances such as, may God strike me blind if I ain't telling the truth. So then there's minstos, right, Tim? Uh, mm -hmm. which, are, which I found, which are actually my favorite. Uh, the minced oath is when uh, some blasphemous or profane term is changed a bit or minced so it no longer offends. We have the expression, don't mince words, to say that one is going to be absolutely clear. But when clarity might get you a hole in the tongue, a cautious person might stop swearing to God but start say, to say other things. Yeah, in the uh, 1300s, they said gog. Uh, in the 1500s, they said Jove. Uh, Mid-1600s, they were saying Gadzooks, which stands for God's hooks. And in the mid-1700s, it was Gosh. By George and doggone it came around in the mid-1800s. Eventually, Great Scott and Good Grief at the turn of the 19th century. And I also found that instead of Jesus, people said uh, Jiminy in the 1600s. That started around then. Gee whiz, and it came around in the 1800s. And Jeepers Creepers. 1930s. But we still haven't covered plain old cursing, or what people call cussin'. Yep, cussin'. Uh, it seems that the word curse covers a broad array of utterances, uh, some of which are blasphemous in the theological sense, uh, and some are which are just profane in the potty mouth sense. I agree. If I curse you to hell, I'm invoking a supernatural power to aid in your misfortune. And that's clearly messing with some theological juju that's got to be dangerous and ought to be taboo. On the other hand, if I scream shit after I smack my thumb with a hammer, I'm using a dirty word to emphasize my displeasure, perhaps conjuring an embodiment of unpleasantness. You know, Tim, us uh, free speech scholars, there's a uh, uh, know about this study. It was done in a psychology. A psychologist did this where he had two groups of people and he had them dip their hands in ice cold water to see how long they could hold their hand in water. And one group of people were allowed to scream profanities. The other group was not. Have you heard of this? No, I have not. Okay. So who do you think was able to keep their hand in the longest? The people who are cursing a blue streak. You're exactly right, right? So you, you, the more you cuss, uh, the longer you can endure that. On the, ex, on the, on the only, uh, what is it, the only issue was that if you swear all the time, it didn't work. Oh, okay. So you have to do it in moderation. Moderation. But I digress. So uh, cussing words have their own version of the minced oath, and that's called uh, dodging the curse. Shut the front door. Oh, gee. <laughs> all right. So let's go over our take-home points. Uh, so blasphemy has been studied as historical and a legal phenomenon. Uh, but uh, our discussion here, Tim, seems to focus on blasphemy as a rhetorical phenomenon, which makes sense given the scope of this podcast. A charge of blasphemy means uh, eliminating opposition rather than engaging with it, and punishments could be very harsh and inescapable um, for a matter of reasons. The best bet, it seems, uh, is for the language to evolve so it didn't offend, but that doesn't mean blasphemy is something of a bygone era. It's still an issue within religious orders and between religious orders and even uh, the queen of pop, Madonna's music. So, and it is, uh, I would also say it's important to note that when someone's accused of blasphemy, they are labeled as being a, a outsider religious orthodoxy. Uh, they are forced to atone or be expelled from the group or from life itself. Uh, and in this sense, blasphemy relates to uh, epideictic rhetoric, epideictic rhetoric. Tim, what do you got? If it ain't sacred, it's profane. Damn, Tim. Straight to the point. I like it. All right. 
So we, uh, you ready for some challenges? You got, we got time for challenges. I have. I am ready. Okay. So my challenge for you, Tim, is it better, or which prof, which type of blasphemy is worse? If it comes from within the religious order or from outside the religious order? Ooh, that is a good question. So blasphemy within the religious order, basically, is assuming that you share some theological beliefs. So it seems like it's a pretty powerful kind of blasphemy. If it's outside the religious order, they can say, well, he just doesn't understand. He's got a different view of God. So, so I'd say blasphemy within the religious order is uh, it's a little more uh, potent. Yeah, an insider. Yeah. All right, what do you got for me? And I would agree. I would agree with your assessment there. Okay, so I grew up in a house where there was no cursing. Uh, my parents never even said damn, much less dropping an F-bomb. Uh, Dave, you are the father of two young boys. So in your household, I was wondering what practices you engage in or what is your attitude towards possibly shielding your sons from cussing or possibly protecting them from the consequences if they were to do it outside of the home? Uh, um, fortunately, we don't have that uh, situation too much to deal with. Uh, the oldest child is five, and he knows there's grown-up words that he can not say and words he shouldn't be saying um, or in words he can say. The, the littlest one, he can barely talk, so we're good <laughs> with that. Um, but he knows there's grown-up words that he can use when he gets bigger, but he mm -hmm. knows not to use them, and so that's fair. Oh, okay. I'm a free speech guy. I, I, I will allow him to speak freely once he earns the uh, the uh, opportunity. So so uh, in I was raised Catholic, and in Catholic religion, uh, seven is the age of reason. As we know, 18 is an age when a lot of things can be done. At what age are you going to let uh, the oldest one uh, start cussing? 42. <laughs> now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. Looks like it's time for another historical tidbit. Ah, this is a juicy one. And it just happened pretty recently when Pope Francis was giving an address and he produced what some would call a Freudian slip, when instead of the Italian word for case, he used a similar sounding word that is the Italian F-bomb. He realized his mistake in real time and quickly inserted the correct word, casso, and kept on rolling, demonstrating the kind of multilingual dexterity appropriate to a pontiff. Tim, who's sponsoring this episode? Today's episode is sponsored by the patented mediation module. Now that you have a high-end treadmill or stationary bike that includes an online fitness coach to spur you to peak performance, you feel even worse about skipping a session or bailing after 10 minutes. That's where our patented mediation module comes in handy. Just turn on the voice-activated mediator, and every time your online trainer says something like, come on, you can do it, the mediator responds, that's what you think. When the trainer yells, just three more minutes, the mediator says, I'll give you one, maybe. When the trainer says, don't stop now, the mediator responds, I will if I feel like it, or you're not the boss of me. That's the fitness mediation module, taking back our life, one app at a time. I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University, and this has been rhetoric o -Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. If you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fund, or consult your local library. And don't forget, if you have any suggestions for Season 3 or any questions, you can email us at rhetoric.fund at gmail.com.